0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. This is everybody tonight. We're finishing up uh, a couple of months where we've been looking at the structure of our sitting practice, and in particular, the last month, looking at what's called samadhi, which usually gets translated as concentration, but maybe a better definition is the unification of mind. And we've talked about how samadhi, this concentration, can arise by developing skill and noticing the different afflictive emotions, seeing them as just what they are. So instead of noticing the mind is judging and getting, in a sense, captivated, caught up in the judgment, we see, well, judgment is just a pattern. It's just thinking that has this particular flavor of judging that is being known. So it's a a kind of uh, stepping back, stepping out of the particular pattern and recognizing it's just a pattern, habitual pattern being known. And there's many facets of this skill, and we all need this skill. We need to be able to basically know the unwholesome inventory of our conditioning, our habit energy, and to be able to very quickly recognize, oh, it's just this pattern, like our top ten list of ways we react to experience, and not to be confused by it. And so the Buddha talks about you know, recognizing the hindrance, abandoning the hindrance, and then relating, being in the world in a way that prevents the arising of the hindrances, which have the flavor generally of greediness or aversion, which includes fear. And even things like boredom and impatience fall under aversion, doubt, restlessness, and dullness. So these are the five hindrances. Generally, you can categorize any typical afflictive state of mind under one of these five categories. So if you memorize this list, then when you notice that it's not easy to be bright and relaxed, that beautiful balance we call samadhi, then you can just ask, well, what, what is it that's present that's disturbing the natural balance of alertness and relaxation? What's disturbing it? And you, and you can name it you know, as best you can. Oh, is it dullness in the mind? Is it restlessness? And is there doubt? That sort of circular, where we're not actually sinking into the moment, because we're thinking about how we should set, settle into the moment. Or is it greediness, wanting something to, to happen, wanting things to be other than they are? Or aversion, thinking I have to get rid of this before I can be clear and relaxed. So we just look. Now, more recently, we've been talking about the other side of developing concentration, which is mostly just about knowing the map. Like, How is it that the mind collects itself into this beautiful balance? And you might be surprised, but this is a very powerful, effective way to to develop beautiful, balanced states of mind, is basically just to remember how it's happened in the past. It's almost like the mind uh, understands this particular group. You know how it is, like, probably everybody in this room, we could remember a particular person we have a lot of resentment for, and very quickly, with some, you know, effort, develop a strong resentment in the mind, you know, and a lot of anger. And then all of a sudden, a lot of things would start making us angry it may be started by just this one particular memory visualizing the person remembering what they said or did to us but pretty soon the person next to us is going to irritate us and our body's going to start irritating us and our thoughts about monday's going to irritate us right the nice thing is we can do it with wholesome states too we can create the same kind of groove we have toward resentment towards self-judgment you know any of the common patterns in our mind we can create a positive groove. Because if we know how the mind can unfold toward peace, toward unification, toward clarity and calm, the mind will, in fact, this has an even more natural gravitational pull than the pull towards resentment. Now, there is, surprisingly, like, why is it so easy to fall back into resentment or any of these afflictive states? Well, there is, in a sense, some gravitational pull. It's juicy. We feel alive. The, surprisingly, the pain of those afflictive emotions, afflictive mind states, the pain makes us feel alive. It's, con- it's a contracted state of mind. It's intense. It has an intensity. And when our mind is dull, which it usually is because It's basically exhausted by being pushed around, you know, by our attachments and just the way our mind relates to experience with attachment and fear and desire. So we're exhausted. So the only thing that feels significant is something that's intense, even if it's painful. So we gravitate towards these afflictive states. But we can cultivate the taste for a more sublime, refined state of mind. And actually, as I I was saying, there's a more natural gravitational pull toward these refined states. But the mind needs to know how to go there. So that's what I want to talk about tonight. In the last few weeks, I talked about the five jonic factors, which is part of this map where we're, we're recognizing, connecting, and sustaining, and the joy, and the contentment, and ease, and the stillness that arise as the energy of the mind collects itself in the present moment. So the basic cause for, in a, in a meditation practice, for the mind coming into concentration, what we call right concentration. So concentration that's arising not because we're afraid, you know, like sometimes there's a lot of fear and we can get really concentrated. Or there's a lot of greed, like, we really, want, we really want this person to like us. And you can get really focused on that or whatever. You know, You really want to pass the exam. You can get really focused. But the greed or the aversion that's supporting the concentration, it's a different kind of concentration than what we're trying to develop in meditation. In meditation practice, the unification, the coming together of the energy of the mind, that's what concentration is, that unification it's arising due to um, wholesome qualities not unwholesome qualities and as I mentioned you can use the five jhanic factors of just connecting with something in the present moment sustaining attention with the present moment feeling the joy noticing it noticing the ease that comes out of feeling joy feeling ease uh, feeling joy that pleasantness makes the heart relax. And then we can start noticing that relaxation in the heart, that happiness or ease in the heart. And that ease in the heart helps the mind experience stillness because when the mind is feeling that ease, it stops the doing. It doesn't need to do. This is what I want. So there's a stillness and we can notice the stillness. These are the five qualities that map out wholesome concentration but I want to step back tonight and talk maybe even more generally about the flavor of unification and how in more ordinary experiences in daily life we can begin to understand that those natural moments of unification because they happen a lot they happen in play you know when you're doing something you like to do the mind tends to collect itself. Just like when we're doing something we don't like to do, the mind tends to go all over the place. Either it's, it's complaining about what it's doing, or we somehow think, well, I shouldn't be here because this is unpleasant. And I'll fantasize about this, or I'll do this with my mind. We put the headphones on, or we call somebody on the cell phone, anywhere but be here. So one of the first um, lessons, like if we want to understand, be a good student of samadhi, this beautiful balance of mind, we have to develop an appreciation for what the mind finds pleasant, a kind of pleasantness that isn't 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 harmful to ourselves or others. And there are, there are a lot of things that the mind naturally finds pleasant. And what we want to do as a good student is we want to notice. The effect when the mind is experiencing something pleasant so you're sitting at home and your favorite song comes on the radio now it just notice the in the first few seconds of hearing that song just notice how the mind lets go of the world literally the future and the past disappear The person who has problems temporarily disappears because, because we like the song, the mind, in a sense, gathers around the hearing, the experience of hearing. It's pleasant, so in a sense, all of the energy of the mind draws close. That's what it does. That's what the mind does with pleasant experience. Now, that's in the first few moments. It's easy for this, then, to get corrupted. No. I gotta go to iTunes and buy the song, you know, and get it on my iPod or whatever. Or I've got to, you know, or we start, you know, but we, it, it gets corrupted because we start to think about it instead of resting in it. And this is a real practice. So one of the ways to better understand samadhi, concentration, is to take your practice and illuminate ordinary moments when you're in contact with what's pleasant. Maybe you like snow. So the other day when it was snowing, maybe you stepped outside, took a little walk or something like that. And then noticing the pleasantness. And and in that ordinary moment, you have to remember to take the pleasant experience as an object of meditation. It doesn't matter if you're walking or it doesn't matter where you are, any moment is. You know perfectly fine for meditation practice meditation just means remembering to be really alert this possibility of being really present really alert really interested and really relaxed well, you can do that anytime and then here you might think that the snow falling down through the sky is the object but actually the object is the pleasantness of that the mind finds that sight. Or that experience pleasant so yes we're noticing the flakes and yes we're noticing maybe that very interesting sound of you know when snow's hitting the ground it actually makes a little sound which is so interesting so beautiful in a way but we're especially noticing the pleasantness itself because pleasantness itself is an experience it's the mind liking and and focusing on that and being interested not see it's funny how our mind doesn't want to be present even with pleasant it wants to think about it but thinking about it isn't pleasant the experience is pleasant you know it's like food too you're eating something good but notice next time you're eating something you like to eat how it's not the mind's habit to be relaxed and alert in the process of tasting and chewing and swallowing we want to do something else. It's so ironic. I noticed this on vacation. I don't take too many vacations, probably because this is true. You know, where we're there where we wanted to go, but we're not really there. We're thinking about something else. So we're, you know, reading the New York Times or something like that. Instead of just taking in the beautiful place we might be, or just resting, which is what we wanted, to, to just let go for a while. So that's part of our homework assignment this week, or the next few weeks, is to be a good student of pleasantness and notice the effect when the mind tunes into it. And see if you can maintain that interest, that thread or continuity of attention to the pleasantness. And what happens when you really tune into the pleasantness of it. So again. It's not so much the experience. So initially you notice the snow falling, but then you want to notice if it's pleasant and you want to meditate on the pleasantness. Remember, you're alert, but you're not attached. The second half of the attitude is the relaxation, the acceptance. So you're not trying to hold on to the pleasantness. You're really interested in it, alert, vividly, present, but you're also released, relaxed, just letting it be what it is. Not expecting it to last longer than it's going to last. Not afraid that it's going to go away. Not wondering if it's going to get better. But just interested and relaxed. Interested in how it actually is right now. And released. Not, nothing more. Uh, no conception. No need to conceive or to have thoughts about it. So that's, that's one way... You can practice it would be nice both tonight and then next week to report back like what you learned in terms of pleasantness and How it affects your mind and how it relates when you've noticed the mind Coming into Samadhi in your meditation practice because you'll see the same thing happens the mind connects and it sustains with the breath let's say connecting sustaining that simple attention with the breath And joy begins to arise joy in the wholeness of that attention with the breath and then the joy leads to happiness happiness leads to the stillness of concentration it's a very natural thing and you can notice that same thing in ordinary moments in your life even things like knitting or if you have another uh, hobby or something that you like to do maybe you like to cook Then there, tuning into the pleasantness of the activity, the chopping, the touching of the vegetables, or the whatever it is that you're doing. Maybe you like working out. And then be a student of the pleasantness of that activity. Now, another place that can be really uh, productive in terms of learning about concentration, about the unification of mind, Is in service or acts of generosity, just being a good person. Because there's a certain pleasantness in being a really good person, being kind, moments of being patient, being generous. The Buddha calls this the bliss of blamelessness, joy of generosity. So instead of you know making it a burden, like I have to be good, I should be generous, we're, we're <clears throat> um, sort of opening our mind to like there's a privilege in letting the other guy cut in on the freeway, you know, instead of like <laughs> sort of playing chicken, you know, it's, we just we take that as an opportunity. We know what it's like to need to get into. Elaine and no one's interested in letting us in and we don't really know the whole story, you know so We can just experience that simple satisfaction of being generous and saying oh you need to come in okay I'm gonna let you in and just feel how good that feels You know you notice somebody needs some help and you're busy but It just good to put aside our needs for a moment not always it's not always appropriate to put aside our needs. But sometimes it is. And to take care of this person. Those of you with kids, you know how it is where they... You're at the end of your rope and then you're needed again. And you can practice that surrender, that submission. And you can either focus on like how difficult that is. Or you can focus on how... Freeing it is And it's a kind of samadhi Because this of course assumes that what you're doing is wholesome. So that's the basic assumption when the mind does something wholesome by definition Because it is wholesome the activity Itself feels good. It doesn't mean there won't be other habit energies that are resisting it but Part of the mind understands that this is good. And there is a direct pleasantness with that. So look at the places in your life where there's some service, where you're taking care of the world, taking care of somebody, or even taking care of yourselves. And notice the joy that arises. And there's a beautiful story from the discourses about this. One of the most famous female characters from the time of the Buddha was a laywoman named Vasaka. And um, she was really into, she had already uh, realized what's called the first stage of awakening. There four stages of awakening, uh, the fourth being like full awakening, which means the mind is uprooted the tendency to be greedy and aversive and confused. And the first stage means you've uprooted some of those tendencies, but not all of them. That you understand something about the nature of the mind deeply enough that there's no falling back into total ignorance, total self-centered existence once you've reached that first stage. And full enlightenment is just a matter of time at that point. That's sort of the, the basic definition. But anyway, so she was a pretty wise person and really generous and had some wealth so she could uh, really take care of a lot of the monks and nuns and she asked the buddha for eight boons eight favors and the buddha says well the enlightened ones they don't give favors we're beyond sort of this business relationship this spiritual business relationship like you're devoted to me and then i'll give you boons i'll give you favors and she says no 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 these are really good things <laughs> i'm not going to ask for like psychic powers or wealth or And the Buddha says, "Okay, what are you interested in? And she says, I'd like to provide robes to the monks and nuns during the rainy season, an extra set. Because uh, I've been noticing, people have been telling me that the monks have been taking off their robes when it's raining hard in order to keep them dry. And people are going to mistake them for the wandering, naked ascetics, And we don't want that happening. (laughs) So that was the first. And then she said, I want to be able to provide food for the arriving monks. Because the monks and nuns were wanderers, so they'd often have to walk a long distance. And then they might arrive, they can't eat past noon, they might arrive so late to the, that village where she lived or that town where she lived, they wouldn't have time to go out to get food. So she wanted to be have special permission to provide the food for the monks and nuns who were arriving to town late in the morning. And they would know that they could go see here and get get all the food they need, as opposed to going house to house, which took quite a long time, getting a little bit of food from each house. And then she asked for the favor of being able to uh, feed the monks who were setting off, because if they're going to walk to another town, they might arrive there too late to collect their food for the day, because monks and nuns couldn't store food overnight. Still can't. That's the traditional rule. So that, and that way they're locked into a symbiotic re- relationship with the lay people because they can't be independent. That was the idea that the monks and nuns would have to be dependent on the lay people for their daily food. And then she asked to be able to provide monks uh, who are sick or nuns who are sick food because obviously they wouldn't be able to go out. And not only that, but to provide food for the caretakers so that person would have to go into the town to get food for the day. And then the nuns, when they're bathing, uh, she didn't want them to have to take off their robes because it causes problems. And she wanted to be able to provide a little cloth for them to wear when they're in the river bathing. Oh, and the last one is rice roll. She heard was really good for people's health. So early in the morning, normally they just have one meal. But she wanted the favor to be able to provide rice roll early in the morning. It's like a cream of rice meal. Uh, as a sort of additional meal for the monks and nuns. And the Buddha, you know, having a sense of visakha and her deep wisdom and kindness, asked her to explain why she wanted these boons. So she went into detail why she thought this would be good for the monks and nuns. And then uh, asked, like, well, how about, the Buddha asked, well, how, about, how is this going to affect your mind? And then she explained, well, you know, sometimes uh, people ask you, you know, when a monk or nun has died, how deep was their practice? And you you might say, well, this person who just died, she was fully enlightened. Her problems were over. She was a saint. And I would then, you know, I'd hear that from one of the monks or nuns. Oh, yeah, such and such died. She was a saint. She was fully enlightened. And it would occur to me, you know, did that monk or nun pass through Sabati, the town where she lived? Hmm, if they did, they might have received a rope from me, a set of ropes from me, or a meal from me, or rice gruel in the morning from me. And remembering that, when I remember it, I'll just read from the discourse. When I remember it, I shall be glad. When I am glad, I shall be happy. When my mind is happy, my body will be tranquil. When my body is tranquil, I will feel pleasure. When I feel pleasure, my mind will become concentrated. That will bring the development of the spiritual faculties in me, and also the development of the spiritual powers and enlightenment factors. Basically, that's just Buddhist code for all the wholesome qualities of mind will arise in a beautiful balance, which will make deeper insight unavoidable. Because that's what samadhi means, that beautiful, simple balance of mind When the mind is bright and alert and relaxed the mind naturally sees things as they are instead of seeing things in a diluted way in a distorted way so she was interested in being a loving generous person partly because she would take care of these people but also because she understood that living a beautiful generous loving life creates really beautiful mind states. And when these beautiful mind states arise, the mind gets concentrated. Just like when we're full of remorse and guilt, and we think the cops are going to catch us for all the bad stuff we've done, or our partner's going to kick us out of our house, or our mind is not concentrated, you know? It's agitated, it's fragmented, it's not good for much. In the same way, if at the end of the day, or the end of the week or the end of the year we look back and and all we see are very clearly that we did the best we could do and that there were some moments where we were really generous and loving and beautiful it's going to leave a really wonderful taste aftertaste in the mind that's pleasant and when we have those pleasant thoughts the body's going to relax because the body and and mind mirror each other and when the body relaxes that will be a further cause for pleasantness in the mind relaxation in the mind contentment and ease and deeper concentration so this is another way to develop concentration or your understanding of concentration is to notice when you're living a beautiful ethical life a generous life when you're being patient and forgiving and kind and notice the effect in the mind not only in that moment, but then when you remember it, like at the end of the day, this is a great way to go to bed. Sit up for a moment in your bed before you go to sleep and just remember all of the beautiful things you did. Now, don't try, you know, don't just pigeonhole this like you've got to have been a Mother Teresa or something like that, you know, feeding the most destitute or picking lice from somebody's wound or in order to have a good feeling. Like I mentioned, the traffic or just refraining from acting out negativity sometimes is a powerfully noble event. You know, it's like we in our mind at least we have every reason to say something that would be hurtful. But we just don't go there. We realize the wisdom, the wholesomeness of just not going there. Not saying it. So we restrain this ourselves, we refrain from saying it. And we can remember that and we can be really grateful. We can appreciate the wisdom of not having done that. So it's not just positive acts, but it's also the refraining from negative acts. So that's a that's a second cause for concentration, this um, wholesomeness. Another is Just this, uh, I guess you could call it a kind of commitment, a fullness of commitment to any activity. Uh, Susan today uh, gave me a book by Bill Russell. I don't know if he wrote it, but maybe did he write it with another person about his uh, career as a professional basketball player. Some of you my age or older might remember him from the Boston Celtics days in the late 60s and 70s. But there's a scene in that book that I'm looking forward to reading um, where he just talks about being in the flow, that fullness of experience playing basketball where winning and losing wasn't in his mind, or being a good player or a bad player, or any kind of fear or greed, just fullness and the joy of that fullness. And this is the secret. To life and to developing deeper states of samadhi is to understand the pleasantness of that full commitment to whatever is in front of us, whatever we're doing. And, you know, of course, you're going to start learning this when you pay attention to what's pleasant. That you can do this with brushing your teeth or really any activity, that full commitment, even having conversations. I notice so much at the time when I'm in conversation with somebody I'm already on my way out of the conversation and I really practice and and it is a practice for me I really practice like when I'm there listening that's all I'm doing and uh, you know our mind has been we have this habit of thinking we can do more than one thing at a time but actually it's not true (laughs) you know we're not really listening when we're doing something else I notice even when I'm fiddling with something you know I have my watch in my hand I'm just rubbing it or something like that even that that little tension that little activity is in the way of a full commitment to just hearing just being in the conversation so there's a sense of relaxing into the the fullness Sharon Salzberg has a couple of paragraphs in her book, um, Loving Kindness, the Revolutionary Art of Happiness. And she talks about fullness in relationship to love and concentration that I think is really beautiful. This is early on, I think in the first chapter in this book on loving kindness. She says, completeness and unity constitute our most fundamental nature of, as living beings. That is true for all of us, no matter how wonderful or terrible our lives have been. No matter how many traumas or scars we carry from the past, no matter what we've gone through or what we're suffering now, our intrinsic wholeness is always present and we can recognize it. This recognition breaks the spell of conventional thought. Surrendering our fixations, simply being happy, is like suddenly breaking free from confinement. So what I think she's pointing to here is, because of all of our wounds from the past, all of the pain we've experienced, emotional pain, physical pain, existential pain, there's a a restlessness in our bodies and mind that that keeps the mind, in a sense, bouncing around, like a hungry animal. Like sometimes when you watch a wild animal, you can see this sort of hungry nature restless nature looking for food looking out for danger and we as human beings of course can get into this so when we commit ourselves to something we're going beyond that restlessness in a way we're putting it aside for a while we're saying that you know even something as simple as raking you know we're saying that even though there may be global warming and the earth only has a hundred years left Maybe my, you know, my partnership is in dire straits, or maybe I have cancer and I don't realize it yet, or I won't have enough money for retirement. So there's all those things that could fragment our mind in that moment. But in this moment, I'm going to just rake. I'm going to really be in this experience of raking. And that's what she means by breaking the spell of conventional thought. We're surrendering our top ten fixations, obsessions. We're putting them aside. And we're saying, right now, just this. And she goes on. The mind becomes radiant. I'm skipping about here. The mind becomes radiant, luminous, in unification. Open, with nothing held back. Nothing to add. Not fragmented. No more divisions. Great fullness of being, which we experience as happiness can also be described as love. To be undivided and unfragmented, to be completely present, is to love. To pay attention is to love. Now, this is something we can explore, of course, in our meditation, but all through the day. Is that really true? Is there a way where paying attention in this balanced way is a kind of wholesome love? pure love, universal love. So just to open our mind that showing up itself is the most authentic, natural act of love. So we can practice with our partners. You know, instead of telling them we love them, we'll always love them. This is practice showing up. You know, how do we show up to our cat? How do we show up at common ground? How do we show up For ourselves, you know, in terms of caring for ourselves. So when we're cooking, you know, really showing up. What is this about? Well, it's about caretaking. I'm taking care of the body. I'm sensitive. You know, showing up means we're listening. Like, what does the body need to eat? What would be good? What would be healing and wholesome for the body? How much? What kind of food? With what attitude should I eat this food? When have we given our body that much attention? That kind of pure, wholehearted attention. It is so satisfying. Just like when a friend, you know, comes and puts their hands on her shoulders and they're really there. It's just, it's healing. Just that conscious touch is healing. And I'll notice somebody puts their hand on my shoulders and they get distracted. And they're they're not really there it feels differently and so this is an act of love and we can we can really cultivate this way of showing up let me read a little bit more from this chapter and in Sharon Salzberg's book this is the truth we contact when we meditate a sense of unity beyond suffering it is always present we merely need to abide I'm sorry we we near, We merely need to be able to access it, to access it. Knowing this truth through direct experience, we enjoy a profound change in our sense of ourselves, of the world, and of life itself. We can also call unity health. The very word health means whole. Our deepest health, beyond even life and death, lies in our inherent completeness, integration, and connectedness. And of course, the point of this is: this is something we can actually practice. We can practice being whole with whatever we're doing. I notice this in terms of being sick or sleepy at night when I've had a long day. Like, how do you, how do we wholly like, own? How do we show up to being exhausted? To really let the system crash, you know, to create the, the landing, you know, we know, okay, I've got about three minutes left. And just to clear the way so we, we're showing this is the truth. Because I notice I can ignore that truth. I can turn on the computer, I can read the news, and I can obscure the fact that I'm completely exhausted. And what this body-mind really wants to do is go to zero. And I can whip up, you know, through... Sources of entertainment or conversation or even movement, you know doing something. I can whip up using frenetic energy But it's not it's not it's not showing up because if we show up It's like there's a basic intelligence there when we show up. We know what needs to be done So that's another way to learn about Samadhi. So we have um, Just the study of pleasantness we have the joy of being kind and generous and living an ethical life as a source of pleasantness, that bliss of blamelessness that leads to samadhi. We have the quality of fullness, which is a lot like love showing up. And this showing up, you know, it doesn't it doesn't matter if what we're showing up is somehow broken or imperfect. Because what makes it whole is the way we show up. It's not like it's not like uh, you know the activity is perfect. We go for a walk, we practice showing up, but you know the weather isn't the way we like it, or the leaves are already down, or. But we what makes something beautiful and healing is much more about the attitude through which we're understanding or relating to the experience. Than the actual experience itself it's the attitude it's the mind that's knowing the experience that makes the experience beautiful and we see this all the time it's hard to believe but I think it's really true and this you know this particular practice of wholeness or showing up fully really teach us that just a couple more I'll mention briefly we're running out of time and I want to say some time for people's comments but for some people especially but everybody a little bit the more you understand this particular path of practice or this path of waking up path of awakening there's a uh, there can be a deep gratitude and appreciation that these teachings are available, especially in our culture today. Maybe it's always been this way through history. I'm not sure. But certainly, these teachings are countercultural. You know, Mostly what our culture reminds us and reinforces is the path of distraction and entertainment and denial. And so the fact that... There is this path that men and women have been cultivating this understanding and sharing it generation after generation for a long, long time. And that people can recognize it and respect it and that even at a funny little corner in Minneapolis you can come and hear these teachings is really remarkable. And if you reflect on that, just the awareness of there being a path and that we're actually interested in this path, and that we stumbled upon it, and that we're healthy enough and not overwhelmed by poverty or other issues in life to be interested and in, to actually be able to cultivate it. All of that, the, the odds of all of that is pretty amazing. When you look at the big picture, it's pretty rare to be healthy enough, love, fortunate enough, you know, with the interest and the bumping up against the teachings. And to be able to cultivate them, to have the wherewithal to cultivate them, thats the odds are not great. And so we can be really grateful and appreciative that we have this opportunity. And that can be a cause for a lot of joy, for some people in particular, people with a more devotional bent. And you can water that devotional energy. I mean, devotional energy can, for certain, uh, veer off into you know, sort of destructive work a sort of blind devotion. That when it's really we're seeing something beautiful and wholesome in our life and the appreciation and the gratitude out for that, that the presence in our life can be a real source of pleasantness, wholesome pleasantness, which allows the mind to come together. Remember, that's the whole idea. Wholesome pleasantness is the proximate cause for concentration. At another place in this book, uh, Sharon's book, she talks about times in her practice where she, she wanted to concentrate, and it wasn't happening. She just felt like she should beat her head against the wall. You know how we feel that way sometimes. Like, if I just beat this old horse, it's going to do what I want it to do. And then, sure enough, in these synchronistic ways, a teacher or somebody gave a talk about the proximate cause for concentration being happiness, not beating your head against the wall. And we have to remember that if we really want the mind to come together in this beautiful, balanced state that we always read about happening to other saints and wise people, we have to realize it happens naturally when we're experiencing wholesome pleasantness, the pleasantness that arises when the heart is full or wholly present, like when we're being kind or when we're um, loving. And one of, the, one of the particular, for some people, one of the particular ways into beauty and the wholesome pleasantness is the appreciation of simplicity. I just ended up uh, leading a four-day retreat. Todd was there. Maybe a couple other people in the room were there too. We go out to Holy Spirit Retreat Center uh, west of Faribault four times a year for long weekend retreats. and. Several people on the retreat mentioned how powerful it was, even with the stormy weather we had, just to stare out at this big, like Lake Elysian. It's a nice-sized lake, and right around the retreat center, it's mostly wild, you know, a lot of cattails and trees and birds. And And so just the simplicity of that environment and tuning into simplicity... Just even the space of the sky, lying down or sitting on the side of the hill. And just the simplicity of that visual field. You know, just the blue or just the white of the clouds. Or just the sound of wind through trees. Any simple experience and tuning into it, for some people especially. Part of this whole path of concentration is each of us individually finding out what the mind likes what wholesome experience the mind likes to collect itself around for some people the easy way will be service acts of generosity other people will be being in nature other people will be the quality of love other people will be that a commitment you know work or just that uh, wholeness showing up doing one thing at a time but everybody has a way to find this wholesome feeling uh, of the mind. It's like that full commitment of the mind. The commitment not driven by fear or greed, but it's the joy of commitment itself. The joy of being whole itself is what really creates the integrity and the strength of it. And then it's just a matter of cultivating it. Once the mind sort of tastes the wholesome pleasantness, Then we're just watering that groove, revisiting. Hey, Mark, do you remember how pleasant that was the other night? Let's see if it's pleasant today. You know, remember when you were chopping vegetables on Saturday and you really felt good and just the tactile experience and the sound of the knife and the cutting board and just the, the wholesome feeling of taking care of your body by cooking a nice meal? Let's try it tonight. You know, and you do that enough times. And it be, then you don't even have to try to remember. You'd have to actually work at not remembering. You know, And you can shut the radio off. And you can make just this ritual of cultivating a wholesome, pleasant state, letting the pleasantness naturally collect the energy of the mind, noticing all the beautiful qualities of mind start arising. There's mindfulness. There's forgiveness. There's interest. There's joy. There's tranquility. There's contentment. There's stillness in the mind, a kind of peace or equanimity. It's like uh, the Buddha said this, I think it was the Buddha, said something like, all of the wholesome qualities, like when the mind is mindful, all the other wholesome qualities gather. So when we, we have that wholeness or fullness of presence, all the other good qualities come. And then it's just a matter of balancing them all. You know balancing the energetic qualities with the soft tranquilizing qualities until the balance is really shiny beautiful and uh, still and then the whole world opens up the whole world of experience opens up the understanding of the nature of the mind just opens up it's like enlightenment is a natural process as long as we think we've got to get enlightened we have to have insight It's not going to happen. But by understanding how to experience natural happiness, pleasantness, and in a sense, watering it, revisiting it, cultivating it in our lives, we'll discover these very beautiful, balanced states of mind. And we'll understand our life in ways we haven't yet understood it. Things will just be obvious to us in a way that we're completely missing it now. But I'll leave it here. We'll, we'll come back at least one more week. But we have about uh, 10 minutes or so. If there are any comments or questions from the talk tonight, what comes to mind? Yeah, say your name again. Hi, Jan. Jan. Um, I
1: kind of have a lucky relationship with words. And- I, for the very brief moments that I've experienced Samadhi, or what I think of Samadhi, um, what always takes it away is linguistic stuff that gets in the way. And so, an experience of this was, I was on a weekend retreat up at the North Shore, and it was a beautiful morning. We were sitting out on the rock over Lake Superior watching the sunrise. And for very brief moments, I could just sit and watch the sunrise. And then the words would come in, beautiful, shimmering, pink. And then it would be further abstracted about me having a conversation with myself about, wow, isn't this a gorgeous sunrise? I mean, all of these words would just get in the way. And then I would realize it was happening, and I would let them go, and I would just back, be back to this experiencing it. Yeah. So how how is there a way to? And then the other thing I'm noticing is I'm watching little babies that are pre-verbal. And watching them just look and observe and kind of wishing I could go back to that state of not having words.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And but that would be really helpful for me. Total
0: lobotomy. Or I look at my dog yeah. and uh, how they interact with the world uh, and how she does and, and it's not verbal. And I'm is, is there a way to kind of quiet the linguistic side of our brain to help with messaging?
1: Well,
0: you're you're basic you're asking the question that's right okay. with the conversation tonight. So I think it's a good we'll probably have to end with it but let me let me just sort of use your example to talk about Samadhi so there you are sitting on the rock looking at the beautiful sunset and because the mind is conditioned to find it beautiful it's really pleasant and in that pleasant experience for a few moments the mind the mind that is mostly fragmented fragmented because of its doing and its analyzing and its remembering and its reactivity is not so fragmented because because the experience is so pleasant, that part of the doing mind stops doing. And what's left is the stillness or wholeness of the mind, a non-fragmentation of the mind. Now, the problem is, and that's really what I'm talking about now, we don't know. The mind doesn't know what to do with that pleasantness. We have to gain skill. We have to be good students of this wholesome pleasantness. It's a whole other arena of insight to learn how to relate to that wholesome pleasantness of unification itself. And what trips us up is when the unification happens and we're there observing the sunset, we forget to notice the unification itself. We forget to notice the joy and the wholeness. Those are mental qualities that are present now, in the moment. But if we don't notice them, surprisingly maybe, they're going to confuse the mind. And what the mind will do is think, oh, this feels so good. It must be something to grasp. right? Because that's what we do habitually with pleasant objects. We grasp them. And that that habit, of course, is completely counterproductive because the way to um, allow this pleasant experience to further develop as a more wholesome, more beautiful, pleasant experience is to not grasp it, but to just be present with it. So the only way to develop the samadhi in that moment is to recognize that samadhi is happening. We have to be mindful of everything. At first, the only thing we're mindful is the pretty colors in the sky, you know, or maybe the cool breeze against the cheek. But then, once the once pleasantness becomes a dominant uh, activity or quality in the mind, we have to notice that. Oh, pleasant, pleasant, joy, rapture. We have to notice all the different flavors, because that's part of the truth of the moment. And if we're not aware, we're disconnected from our lived experience. We're not really awake. And the whole practice is about being awake. Surprisingly, it's more difficult for most people to be mindful of beautiful experiences, pleasant experiences, than it is for unpleasant. Most of us learn the ropes of practice with unpleasant experience. It gets our attention first, for sure. And it's easier. Because when we experience something pleasant, there's a deep habit that basically says, you don't have to do anything because it's pleasant, but we do have to do something. If we don't pay attention to the pleasantness, we'll get confused by it and we'll react habitually to it. So that's okay because there you did—you reacted to it, you took it personally, you started because it was a personal experience you were having. You felt like I've got to control this experience. Maybe I'll start naming it. You know, oh, it's this, it's that. It's the, is this better than the experience the sunrise I saw that? You know and you're off because it's the mind's attempt to hold on to the pleasant experience but that's okay because you've also learned how to abandon the hindrances so then you realize something's wrong because I'm suffering so you know, okay, remember the five hindrances so which, what's going on is the mind under the influence of greed, aversion doubt, restlessness or sleepiness so what do you think, I mean You were there. Yeah, greed. Yeah. Oh, so then, then you're just going to notice the greed, and you can even name it if it's helpful in the mind. Oh, just wanting, liking. It's just liking and wanting, you know. And you just keep noticing that, noticing that, noticing that the wanting is impermanent. And when you see that it's impermanent and that it's afflictive, you won't recreate it in in one moment. You know, it's there, it's there, and then all of a sudden. The mind's not recreating the greed, and you're right back. So we we get very skilled at popping the afflictive qualities when we notice them. And then we get another opportunity to notice the sunrise, to notice the pleasantness of it, and to not be confused by the joy and the pleasantness and the happiness and the stillness and all the wholesome qualities that begin to develop when the mind isn't getting distracted because it likes this. And it's just using the pleasantness of this to come into unification or to samadhi. And then we lose it again. Because as the, the joy, as the happiness gets even more profound, it will be beyond our skill level. And we'll start taking personally again. And then we'll start thinking about it. And then worried that we're going to lose it. And there we do, oh, I knew I was going to lose it. you know, <laughs> And then lamenting and blaming and feeling, I'll never get this right. And then we realize, oh, it must be a hindrance because I'm suffering. And we'll look and we'll see, oh, I'm hating myself. That's aversion. Well, it's just aversion. You know, and you look at it, and eventually aversion falls away, and then we are again, the sunrise is still happening. <laughs> you know, and so we're playing with both. You know, when it's pleasant, we're learning not to be confused by it, not to stop practicing just because it's really pleasant, but to stay interested. We tend just to relax when it's pleasant. And it's just like, and when it's uh, difficult, we tend to be alert, but not relaxed. But we need both of those qualities, both times. When it's aversive or unpleasant, we need both the interest and the trust and relaxation. And when it's pleasant, we need both the relaxation, but also the alertness. We don't want to let go of the alertness just because it's pleasant. We want to be interested in the pleasantness. Really feeling it deeply, being intimate with the pleasantness and the joy and the happiness. We have to leave it here. Just take a few moments, maybe take a breath together and let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.